Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right. So I'm sitting here and I am talking to Kyle Camp of v2p valley to peak nutrition and uh, we're going to talk about dehydrated meals kyle you want to introduce yourself before we jump into it yeah i'd love to lucas appreciate you having me on again it's been a while since we talked we've already been talking for 30 45 minutes dealing with technical difficulties and talking <laughs> for different different things but appreciate you having me back on and yeah i'm kyle camp i'm a, a dietitian and own valley to peak nutrition uh, live in live in Idaho, and you know Valley to Peak is really centered around helping people prepare for and perform in the mountains, doing whatever it is that they enjoy doing. It's a lot of I deal with uh, work with a lot of hunters, a lot of folks who do you know any type of thing that you can imagine in the mountains that requires any type of effort. Um, and a lot of times, it's guys interested in preparing for a trip, so you know they'll reach out several months in advance, and we'll walk them through a program on getting them in the type of shape they feel like they need to be in to go through those pursuits. So it's fun. I love it. Been doing it for four or five years now and um, couldn't imagine doing anything else. So before we jump into the whole meal thing that we're going to talk about, I got to ask you though. So 
when you do your programs and and your uh, it's not just nutrition. Is it entire like life type thing, or what, what what's going on there? Is it like workout plans, or you tell them to find something for themselves, or how's that work? Well, it's it's a good question, and honestly, like it if you deal with one area, like for instance, if you jump in nutrition, which I'm the most experienced in, it's inevitable that life, <laughs> life comes up. It's inevitable that exercise comes up. And so, yeah, there's, there's things within that plan, uh, you know, that you have to help people work around. So yes, it is, it is stuff that deals with, you know, okay, you've got it. You've got a nutrition plan, how do you strategically come up with a plan with a, with a plan to do it? For example, I have, you know, I have uh, someone who emailed me a little bit ago. He's like, I, I work, you know, early in the morning to late in the afternoon, but I can't really find a strategy to meal plan or to exercise or whatever. Is that something we can work through? So we'll come up with a game plan on that front. And then the activity piece is either, either they already have something they're doing or they want some suggestions. And so having had done this as long as I've been doing it, you know, I've got a lot of resources that are either free or low cost or has discount codes through Valley to Peak that they can do if they're not already doing something. But if they are, then we'll put in place every week, there's a activity goal and then there's a nutrition goal. So part of that activity goal is to make sure that you're not digressing in your training while you're trying to lose weight, right? I mean, everyone's got a story of, yeah, I, I was really successful in losing weight, but I lost a ton of stamina. I lost quite a bit of muscle. I lost all of these different things that you don't want to lose. And there's a you know, sort of a myth or a mantra floating on, floating around out there that you can't have both. And you can, it just takes some strategic work. And that's one of the things that we work on together is making sure that they're not digressing in training or losing muscle or losing strength while they're trying to lose weight, which is what you know, most people are interested in they're 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 wanting to lose some weight and get in shape for some type of mountain endeavor endeavor in the mountains nice i like that so with that being said we decided we were going to talk about um meal prep for in the back country and doing your own dehydrated diy meals um i've been doing them for i guess about a year now and i love it i love experimenting um, especially like last time we talked, I kind of told you some of my actual dietary hangups, if you will, that, <laughs> um, most of them weren't even dietary hangups. Like there is truly uh, a necessity. I do have to be gluten-free, but at some point I chose to be mostly grain-free and found that my allergies and things like that improved as well. So I try to limit the intake of that kind of stuff. And it's kind of hard when most of your mountain houses and things like that are not only chocked full of sodium and a bunch of other things that, you know, is twice your daily intake of a normal diet. But um, most of them, it, that, especially that are gluten-free, are just straight up rice with whatever or something like that. And so it was something that I kind of wanted to get away from and still be able to have food that I enjoyed and liked and, and to be able to have some type of nutritional value. Was that kind of the same for you, but more so just having a great home cooked meal too, or how'd that go? Yeah. I mean, mine wasn't necessarily what drove me to start making my own. Wasn't necessarily any sort of dietary restriction, like in the way that you have, I mean, with, with what you've got, there's, 
consequences, right? If you even get trace amounts of wheat or whatever it is. So there's a real need for that. For me, it was versatility. Like I just got tired of eating the same five flavors. It was cost. I got tired of paying 10, 12 plus dollars for a single meal every night that I was out. And then obviously as a dietitian, the third one will come as no shock, but just the ability to manipulate what's in it to match my personal nutrition needs, right? Like if I needed more protein or if I needed more carbohydrate because it was a really challenging day, I didn't want to have to rely on reconstituting mashed potatoes, you know, to bring my carbon take up with pad thai, for example, right? I, I wanted to be able to manipulate what was in it to mirror, uh, you know, what I wanted in there. And yes, it did. I mean, it tastes to me, it tastes way better. And uh, the versatility is great. Like if I want, you know, really, and I think, I think in my experience, people have been very intimidated by the idea of dehydrating their own. And, you know, really what it amounts to is just about anything you make for dinner can be dehydrated. Right. And, and so when you think about, okay, well, you know, what are the options? They're truly endless within reason, right? And I would imagine we'll get into this. There's some stuff that just doesn't dehydrate well. And there's some tips and some tricks that you can use to get a better input, but really for the most part, kind of the only limiting factor is your creativity, which I, like, I love. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of, for a while there, I was trying to do a lot of different ingredients that were like separate ingredients and then combine them. And, um, when Livisai and I talked about it, he's like, ah, you know, you get a lot more flavor in it if you actually, you know, cook it like you would normally cook it and do all those things, which I found out like imparting moisture into this before you actually dehydrate it is huge. Is that something you've kind of come across too? Yeah, I did. For a while, I did kind of the same thing. Like I would, you know, for example, dehydrate a big batch of ground beef and then dehydrate a big batch of rice and then dehydrate a big batch of veggies. And then I just started cooking it all and then dehydrating the entire recipe. And I, you know, I think, you know, his, his comments and thoughts on it, um, just imparting more flavor is definitely true. And then it also rehydrates faster, right? So depending on what you bring back there, you're going to be concerned with how much fuel it takes, right? Like if you try to take pasta back there, that's not been cooked or rehydrated, you're going to burn a ton of fuel, just trying to cook the pasta or whatever it is. So it rehydrates faster and then you're waiting long, you're waiting less, you know, if you, if it's already been cooked and dehydrated once, when it comes time for your dinner or whatever, it doesn't take as long to reconstitute or rehydrate, which is nice. So the one thing I found was that, um, things with like noodles or something like that in it tend to take a little bit longer to rehydrate than, than other things. Like, have you found anything that was kind of takes quite a bit longer? Yeah, I, I, uh, probably my favorite thing that I make is a elk chili Mac and that takes a little bit longer. The beans take a little bit longer. The little pieces of pasta that I do put in it take a little bit longer. The ground elk takes a little bit longer to fully rehydrate. I mean, it doesn't take, it's not too terribly bad to start to get 
you know, some of it rehydrated, but what you'll find is the middle is not done. So, you know, you get a decent product, but the middle still leaves some to be desired because it's still dry and crunchy, right? But if you give it another 10 minutes or what have you, it'll generally cook all the way through. And, you know, I don't know if we'll jump into this too, but when you're rehydrating it, like one thing that I found is having some form of insulation around the bag or the cup or whatever to give it plenty of time to do that. Otherwise you wind up with a cold dinner, right? Yes. So, you know, I've got, uh, I bought a, basically a giant roll of this stuff called Reflectix at Home Depot, which is kind of the same stuff that the sun shades are made out of that you would use for your car window and just made a small, like a small mold that holds the bowl and you know it, you let that sit around it while it rehydrates and it's almost still too hot even 20 30 minutes later to eat i forgot that's right you use a bowl and you pack your stuff in ziploc bags like i went the fancy yes. route and i ordered bulk and i figured it out it will last me and like the cost savings is cheap like it's i think it's less than a buck a bag the, the oxygen absorbers are what bring it probably over a dollar. But um, if the the bigger bulk you buy, the more money you save. And I figured it out. It's going to last me quite a few hunting seasons, like maybe the rest of my life. I'm not sure. Unless I start making them for other people too. But no, I, that's, I, that's, <laughs> that is that's that's that is a problem. That may be the better route, but that's a little, that's too bougie for me. <laughs> <laughs> I I just throw it in a Ziploc and like, and then just cook it, you know, and um, yours would probably be more shelf stable, right? So I think it, it probably depends on, you know, what a guy's doing with it after, after they cook it. Um, but I will, I will even, you know, I'll make it all dehydrate it all, break it up into baggies and then freeze it. I'll, I'll leave it in the freezer just to get a longer shelf life out of it. And then, you know, I'll build up a good stockpile just in the deep freezer and then, you know, pull them out for a hunting trip. And, you know, I, I like we went on a um, we went on a backpacking trip last month and I ate some stuff that's been in there for three or three and a half years. And it was great. I mean, truly, no exaggeration tasted like it did the day I made it. It was awesome. So, you know, I know that you can at least get three and a half years. <laughs> out of doing it like that um and maybe even longer if you if you take the route that you take which it sounds like you vacuum seal and put a and put an absorber in there so so i don't vacuum seal them i take most of the air out of there and then i throw in an oxygen absorber per the recommended size and actually i buy i actually buy them oversized so like i buy them for the next size bag up that way i only have to throw one in and it actually shrinks that bag down nice and tight and I ended up accidentally buying the thicker, uh, I think they're like seven mil bags instead of the five mil bags that I was going for. But yeah. I actually found it works out better because sometimes if you had something that was sharp, like uh, when you when you break it up and you put it, pack it into the bag, sometimes something would poke through if it was like a real hard piece of meat or something like that. And you, you don't have that problem with the heavier bags now. Um, I don't put them in the freezer, but I found that they last... Like I had one that I made probably close to last summer. I made one and I had it in my drawer at work and I pulled it out and it was like a couple of weeks ago, things were too busy at home and everything. And I'd rushed out the door in the, in the morning to go to work and 
didn't have a lunch with me because the night before we were too busy. And uh, I pulled that thing out and rehydrated it and ate it. And it was just fine. So I, I don't know what the trade-off is there. And I'm sure it's probably a good idea. And I know that Livesey does the same thing with his, uh, his meals. He throws them in the freezer. He also adds a lot of like dairy and other kinds of things, you know, cheeses and stuff like that. I don't have a lot of that kind of stuff in mine, but I imagine if I did, it would probably be a good idea to, to, uh, to do that for sure. So do you use, do you use an insulation layer when you're rehydrating? Do you put something around that bag? I do. I have a friend, um, that I actually met at the Western hunting summit that the dude is amazing. He makes all his own stuff. So we were there and I'm looking at this teepee tent that he's sleeping in. And I was like, man, that's pretty cool. What is that? Like, that's not a seek outside or, you know, something I've seen. He's like, oh no, I made it. I'm like, what? Like he, he made it all out of like sill nylon and seam sealed it and did all these things and, and put his own little, uh, the little cable things that slide up on the cable to hold your, your, your door open. And I was like, man, that's pretty cool. And he's like, yeah, I, I like making a lot of my gear. And then I'm looking at his bino harness and I'm like, what, where, where'd that come from? And he's like, oh no, I made that too. And I'm like, really? So when I started making the meals, I reached out to him and I was like, hey man, I saw you made these insulated bags because he makes a trip annually to Illinois to a friend's property and they go whitetail hunting. And he's like, I needed a way that I could keep the meat, throw it in the freezer beforehand, and be able to throw it in a bag and carry it on with me on the airplane. And so he's got these insulated bags that he made. And I was like, Oh, I've got an idea I need. So he made me like two different prototypes. And so one of them is like the same material you're talking about where it's almost like the bubble wrap sunshade thing with the mylar on it. Um, he made me one of those and that actually probably works the best, but it's not necessarily the one I like the best because it won't stand up on its own. So like my bag, you can pull open the bottom of the bag and it'll stand up on its own and everything. Um, it, but it doesn't, um, it, it doesn't stand up on its own. So you have to lean it up against something. And like, I guess it wouldn't be that big of a deal until you like maybe get in grizzly country and you don't have a zipper closed all the way when you're rehydrated or, you know, something like that. But the other one he made me is actually like, um, like a polyfill, almost like a sleeping bag, like a synthetic sleeping bag fill. Um, and that one's awesome too. They both do the job. I think the one just keeps a little bit more heat in. Huh. So it was pretty cool. cool. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Like, I almost want to like ask him if I could order a bunch more. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty cool. Like what he came up with. They're they're a pretty good product. They work yeah. awesome. Um, but yeah, so that's what I use, and I found that it helps. Especially, I find so like I don't have a freeze dryer, but I've had you know ordered stuff and made my own meals out of freeze dried things. Freeze-dried definitely rehydrates easier. It definitely rehydrates easier. And I, I, it makes me wonder about, like, the actual nutritional content. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the, you know, the differences from a nutrition standpoint between freeze-dried and dehydrated is mainly the heat, right? So dehydrating typically uses heat. Uh, and then freeze-drying, obviously, like the name indicates, uses freeze-drying. There are some nutrients um, that are pretty heat sensitive, and when they get above a certain temperature, they die, right? Or they're, they're significantly reduced at the very least. So you would get some preservation of that going the freeze-dried route as opposed to going the dehydration route. But, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze in the, in the cost offset, right? Probably but you can not. pick up a 
you can pick up a, a decent little dehydrator for 40 bucks. And if you've got a little more cash to throw at it, you can pick up like a six tray rear fan, you know, good quality square shaped dehydrator for like 116 bucks with a coupon code from uh, the meet your maker company, I think is what it is. Um, so, you know, you compare that 40 to 40 to 120 bucks compared to thousands that a freeze dryer costs, you know, you, you'd really have to justify that nutrient being uh, killed off. Just really feel like, oh man, I need to, I need to pick a freeze dryer up as opposed to going the cheaper, more economical route uh, and buying a dehydrator. But I agree with you. I mean, there's no question that in terms of quality, if the price was the same, I'd have a freeze dryer. Right. But you know, I can't justify by spending, you know, a grand to $3,000 on this thing that I might use, you know, on occasion for backcountry meals. I feel like I would use, if I had a freeze dryer, I would use it all the time. Like it would constantly be running. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong, but like my wife buys these freeze dried apple slices and strawberry slices for the kids and they eat them up like all the time. And I asked her one day, I'm like, how much do we actually spend on these little Mylar baggies of freeze-dried fruit? And she's like, oh, I, I don't know. And I think it comes, it's way too much money. I, I, I almost like lost it. I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> Why are we spending that? And I, and I told her, I was like, as many as you buy in like two years, we could buy a freeze-dryer with the amount of money you spend on it. And she's like, yeah, that's in two years. And I don't really buy them as much as you think I do. And I'm like, I don't know. I see one in there every time, you know, groceries come to I mean, the house. But I think that I think an interesting idea, and I don't have any friends that are foolish enough to do this, but an interesting idea would be to like have a co-op, right? Like if you've got four or five buddies that you regularly hunt with and everybody pitches in 250, 300 bucks, and you've got this sort of community freeze dryer that you guys use that could be a way to get around that barrier to entry and try it. And, you know, if you had a group that planned well, everybody could easily get their money's worth out of that thing. Cause you got to think like, uh, you know, a freeze dried meal, some years. of them, you know, t- let's say $10, you know, if you, if you spend a reasonable amount of time outside, even 10 days, you're already at a hundred. So it, it definitely pay itself off if you were willing to invest in something like that. Not only that, but I mean, you could crank out two years worth of meals in a couple of weeks. And then, I mean, they, they, the shelf life on freeze dried is ridiculous. It's like 20, 25 years. I mean, it is yeah. significantly longer too. That's, I don't know. I know a guy at work that was telling me that there was a lady and I think he was saying he was talking to her about it. And she said the reason she bought one is because she wanted one, but had to justify the cost. So she goes to the farmer's market and sells all these little like novelty things like freeze dried Skittles and that kind of stuff. But then actually freeze dries other things and um, sells them at the farmer's market. And so now she paid it off and she's got her own little side business that she does. If you want to waste Saturdays, I don't yeah. know. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I don't think I have enough. I don't, I don't have enough time to do that, but um, so let's kind of go, we'll go back to the freeze dry so, or the dehydrating. What are, what are you rolling with right now that you're using? Are you using like, uh, one of the round ones or are you using the big rear fan? 
No, we, you know, I about two, uh, that's not true, about three or four years ago, I had gotten a round, I believe it's a Nesco, if I remember the brand on it. You know, we got it at Bath and Body Works or Bed, Bed Bath and Beyond. I used one of my wife's coupons. I think it ended up costing like 40 bucks. That thing for the money has been awesome. I mean, I've dehydrated everything from, you know, simple fruit to veggies to chili mac to the whole bit. And that's what we still have. We do have a square one um, as well. But yeah, that round one has been awesome. Uh, we, you know, there's some add-ons that you can get with those round ones. Like you can get another tray, you can get a uh, kind of an insert that will let you do stuff that would normally leak through the screen. So like soups or whatever it is that you wanted to do. Um, but it's, it's been awesome. And I think key, like if, if people are trying to, to decide, you know, what they should do in terms of you know, buying one, you definitely want one with the temperature control on it, right? Whether it's a knob temperature control or digitally controlled or whatever, you definitely want something that you can manipulate the temperature with because as you start to get into meat and even rice and noodles and things like that, you have to be able to hit another temperature to kill, to make sure that there's no risk of foodborne illness as it sits there in dehydration. It sits in there a while, right? And, and if it's sitting at room temperature, you know, and the nerds in my field call that the temperature danger zone where bacteria is the most prominent and able to grow. So you have to keep it at a certain temperature to make sure that that doesn't happen. So let's, let's dive into that then. That's a really good point. Um, I think I do mine at like 158, 160, like right in there. Um, yeah. And is, I mean, it, cause I, what, what's the, what's the danger zone? It's like the 120 area. Uh, dips, it dips as low as to like the mid to upper forties, 45. And then depending on what it is, can go as high as 160, 165. Right. So for me, because like, if you think about it, the risk of cooking something too high or too long is that it, what it loses the water. Well, that's the goal here. Right. <laughs> so I just. You know, I just tried to be as safe as possible. Like I just cranked that bad boy all the way up. And worst case scenario is it removes more water, which is what I want, right? For something like this. Now, if I'm having, you know, a neighborhood barbecue, no, I don't want it to dry out. But just to make sure that I'm mitigating all risk, I will turn it all the way up to 160 or 165. If I'm doing anything with meat, anything with pasta or anything with rice. Hmm. Why, why the rice? Because so rice, tomato based products, uh, pastas, the, you know, every, everybody sort of is aware of the risk of foodborne illness with undercooked meat or meat getting, you know, sitting out too long or whatever, dairy products, stuff like that. There are pathogens or there are foodborne illnesses that can be had from um, undercooked or or mishandled rice like if it's if it sits at room if it sits at room temperature too long the same with tomatoes the same with pasta and the same with potatoes right so like if you set if you if you cook potatoes and you don't take care of them you leave them out on the counter too long the risk of a foodborne illness the next day is higher than what a lot of people would think so to to just sort of not to make sure that I'm making, to make sure that I'm killing anything that would potentially live on there, 
I just cook all of those things at 165 at least, 160 to 165. Hmm. That's interesting. I I never knew that about the pasta or the rice. So that's uh... and, and, and and you know too like if you cook it at 130, does that mean you're definitely going to get sick? Well, no, but it the risk is much higher, right? And and it's enough of a risk that you know, restaurants are judged on stuff like this. And so if you read your local paper that a restaurant got docked, uh, got docked for improper holding temperatures, it would be on stuff like that, right? So it's enough of a risk that it's sort of known in the food industry. You don't want anything sitting below this temperature to risk, to, to decrease the risk of any type of a foodborne illness. Very interesting. Yeah, I totally did not know that about, especially like the rice. I wouldn't think... There'd be, so, so do you know what it would be on the rice or is it just something that's like airborne that gets on the food or what, I mean, are we talking like E. coli, botulism, what? Yeah. So it would be things like that, that would grow on the same way that you would think about like E. coli, for example, growing on chicken. One of the reasons you cook chicken is at 165 that dies. Right. So it could be intrinsically in the food and then you heat it to 160 to make sure that it does die off. All right. So it's not like it's the same with like black bear. Right. So one of the biggest fears in the world when you kill a black bear is if you undercook the meat, the risk of trichinosis is high. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's been some studies and I'm not these numbers are going to be right entirely, but. Let's say that like 95% of all black bear meat contains trichinosis. It's it's just in there, right? But by cooking it to 165, trichinosis dies. So it mitigates the risk and the person who's harvested the black bear can eat it safely. So it's not like it's anything you've done in handling it. It's not like anything um, that's landed on it while you were packing it out. It's just naturally in the meat. Hmm. So... When you make your meals, are you taking them and right away um, transferring them into your trays and putting them in the dehydrator or are you throwing it in the fridge and then how, how do you go about it? Yeah, so ideally, yes, you would be able to do that because then you, right, there's no risk of it. There's no risk of it being between that 45 to 160. Uh, but I also <laughs> have a real life and sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Right. So what I have done 90% of the time is I'll cook it, throw it in the fridge. And then when I know we're going to be home for a little while, I'll throw it in the, um, in the dehydrator and, and, and let it dehydrate. It's, you know, it's worked fine. It's worked fine. Um, can, so like with chicken, and this may or may not be something we we're going to dive into. Trying to dehydrate your own chicken breast is a tragedy. It never rehydrates well. It's crunchy. It's dry. I've never had it work. Using canned chicken and making sure that you break it apart as it dehydrates is one of the best ways to put chicken in a dish, you know, in your own DIY dehydrated dish. So it's got something to do with the pressure cooking of the canned chicken by the company and then dehydrating it. So there's no risk there in terms of pulling chicken breast right out of a crock pot or right out of an instant pot and trying to dehydrate it on the, on site. Just open the can, put it on there and dehydrate it and you'd be you obviously be fine. So I will say that yeah, n- never and I've tried it 
never try and dice one up or do anything like that unless there's been some serious, serious moisture imparted in it. So with that being said, I don't use canned chicken anymore, but I do make like a burrito bowl type of, uh, of meal. And I take Rotel tomatoes or tomatoes that we've canned that have like chilies in them and put the chicken breasts in the crock pot and put that in until it falls apart to where it's like you could take a fork and just pick out pieces of the chicken and shred it. And I've used that and that works just as well as the canned. So I don't know if there's something maybe you want to maybe get into that at one point, but that works really well. I'll, I'll give it that. I think you ought to, you ought to, you ought to market that because man, every, you know, most of the people I know who have tried chicken breast, it just, it just is really challenging to dehydrate. So, you know, what I've not tried is something like, you know, pressure cooking my own, you know, throwing it in an instant pot and trying to cook some chicken breast and dehydrating to see what the end result is. And honestly, again, like going back to that, just, just the sake of ease, opening a can of canned chicken, <laughs> throwing it on the dehydrator, walking away, like, you know, if it, if it's down to that or not taking a meal, like, I'm just going to crack the canned chicken open and go for it. So you crack it open and you just put it directly on the dehydrator. It's not like you're throwing it into a meal. No. So stuff like sometimes stuff like that, I will do separate. So it's, it's easy like to make a big thing of red beans and rice. It's easy to make a big thing of like cilantro lime rice with, you know, corn in it or whatever. It's easy to make those things. The protein piece is a little more challenging. So in something like that, like if I'm not making a big dish like chili mac, that's everything in. But if I've got, you know, a recipe for red beans and rice, let's say, rather than having to deal with the chicken piece of it, I'll dehydrate it separate and then throw it in. And part of that goes back to me, you know, being able to tailor the nutrition to my needs. If I know I need X number of, you know, X grams of protein, I can measure that out of just a bag of dehydrated chicken, as opposed to, yeah, I, you know, I think it's in here somewhere. Right. And it just allows me to be a little more nuanced in what I want personally. Interesting. So, so let's kind of dive into that more about, um, how you're breaking down. And I understand like each person's nutritional needs based upon whatever would be different, but what's like a good rule of thumb as far as, you know, protein, uh, fiber, fats, all that kind of stuff. Carbs. There's gotta be carbs, right? (laughs) Yes. Uh, so you're right. It is going to be for the most part, um sort of individualized when you look at the world of nutrition we speak in you know so each of those categories that you talked about are called the macronutrients right proteins carbs and fats when you look at those we look you know we sort of speak in those in terms of intervals so one interval of protein kind of the measuring stick of protein is about 30 grams right so when you're eating a meal at home or in the backcountry or whatever, you're sort of asking the question, how much of X, Y, and Z ingredient do I need to get to that 30 gram mark? And with carbs, it's different. With fats, it's also different. So 
it, I think it, it does largely depend upon your needs, but when you look at it, you break it up by those intervals, if that makes sense. So, I mean, like, right, so what, like carbohydrate. What is the rule of thumb for macros and stuff? So, when you look at sort of the macro composition of a meal, and, and, and you know, freeze dried companies do this fairly well, everything is split up by their intervals. So, when you look at protein, for the most part, what you're looking at is about a 30 gram interval. Like that's kind of the measuring stick for the threshold of what needs to be in a product at a minimum to hit a person's protein needs. With carbs, it's really split up by more of a 30 gram interval, right? So if it's been a pretty easy day, 30 grams of carbs. If it's been a more challenging day, 60 grams or a really tough day, 90 grams. And as you look at fat, everything's really built by a five gram interval. One teaspoon of oil, for example, is going to have about five grams of fat. So by knowing that, you're able to tailor a person's nutrition to be a little more detailed in terms of what they need and talk talk not only in terms of grams, which can be foreign to some people, but also talk about servings, portions, right? So it makes it a little bit easier to dial in the person's nutrition based on what it is that they need. So like 30 grams would be what, like four ounces of protein or something like that? Is that pretty close or no? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, you know, 4.3, okay. <laughs> 4.3 ounces of, you know, most lean meats are going to yield about 30 grams of protein per person. Um, you know, but then obviously that translates into something different once you remove the water from it, dehydrating it. So it requires a bit of math. And again, it really only matters if a person's not too concerned about dialing in their nutrition that specific of a level. Yeah, you could definitely just make a big pot of whatever, dehydrate it and be fine. So it, it really depends on a person's goals and how detailed they'd like to be in something like that. Yeah. I I think more than anything is just making sure you're getting enough, not necessarily, you know, dialing it in, right? But not operating at such which you're already going to be operating at a deficiency no matter what, right? But but trying to optimize it, right? Get get as much as you can in, right? Is that is that's kind of the goal, right? Yes. So, you know, Getting enough is definitely one of the bigger issues. Most people aren't going back there and walking out heavier, right? In terms of in terms of their body weight. Hopefully, they're walking out heavier with meat, but not their body weight. <laughs> so it it is a question of getting enough. You know, in terms of there you being in a non negotiable deficit. No, I mean that's that is the core of you know sort of of what I do, right, is making sure you're not walking around in a deficit, because if you're not, you're getting adequate nutrition, then you're going to be able to go day after day. Anybody's going to be able to go and and do fine for a day, two days, three days. But once you start to get into day five, day six, day seven, day 10, you know, day 14, with a lot of people who like go to Alaska that I've worked with, if you're not making up for those lost stores, you will struggle the deeper you get into a hunt. Right. So planning that nutrition to make sure that you're getting the detailed piece of it is important, can be important. So I read somewhere that like 
a, a loaded packer that's actually hiking through the mountains, or maybe it was a sheep hunter or something like that, something that's pretty taxing as far as like physical exertion. But with, with an average of a 50 pound pack, your average person expends like, it's like four or 6,000. I think it's like 6,000 calories an hour or something. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not, well, I'll say this, it's not outside the realm of possibility that that's what they were at. And I, I would say that I, you know, I definitely see people way under their calorie needs as opposed to being at them or above them, right? And so there's several factors that are coming into play here, right? So the heavier you're packed, the more calories you're going to expend. The weather, whether it's extremely hot or extremely cold, the type of terrain, so you you burn fewer calories walking on pavement as opposed to sand, let's say, or or you know something really marshy or whatever. You're expending more energy per step depending upon the type of terrain that you're walking in. And then a person's physical condition. If you're not conditioned for something like this, you're going to expend more energy doing what the conditioned version of you would expend, right? Because naturally, as you train for something, your body becomes more efficient at it, and it requires fewer calories to propel it to do even the same activity. So there's value in training from an energy preservation uh, standpoint as well. It's very good to know. Very good. So what kind of meals, I mean, are you making? Are you making all kinds of stuff or is it like mostly one pots other than the stuff you're adding, you know, protein to the other things? Or have you gone like really crazy and extravagant? Like what's, what's some of the things you've done? I'm not a, I'm not a really, you know, my meals at home really aren't crazy and extravagant. So I haven't gotten too wild, but yeah, I've done, I mean, chili. So the elk, you know, any, any meat, ground beef, elk, whatever, the chili mac is great. And, you know, so one of the keys to that is adding breadcrumbs into the mix as you're cooking the ground beef. It just offers so much better of an end product when you go to rehydrate it as opposed to just cooking the ground beef by itself with the ground elk or whatever. So the, the, the chili mac is one of my favorites. I've done macaroni and cheese with ground beef. Um, I've done couscous with ground beef and Parmesan cheese mixed with kale. That's a really good one, a really easy one. Um, I've done spaghetti with veggies. I've done... Man, I've done so many things. I don't even know. I've done like a like a Santa Fe chicken with rice and black beans, corn, chicken, and then packed in a tortilla. That's good too. Um, I've tried so many different things, man. I'm just drawing a blank. And even <laughs> even if you're not talking about meals, like I'll I'll dehydrate a lot of fruit, mix that with cereal, and have my own trail mix in the morning, for example. So like dehydrated bananas with some nuts and golden grams like it's just <laughs> so good there. Like that's a that's a kid luxury to me uh whenever i'm back there and um so yeah using it for even even like uh something called fruit leather which is essentially like a almost like an adult fruit roll-up Right. So we've got plum trees and berry trees and all sorts of stuff around here. And my wife will go and pick those. She'll cook them down into just a really thick sauce. We'll put them in the blender, make them smooth and essentially spread them on these trays to create 
kind of a fruit roll up type of a thing. And so that's, I mean, that's great to have back there. It's, it's just, there's truly so many different things that you can make with one and so much versatility that you can do that it's just, you, you can't mess it up. That's the other thing, like the <laughs> simplicity of it. It's, it's so much easier than what I first thought that it would be when I started. You know, I thought it was going to be this really steep uphill learning curve. And that just wasn't my experience at all. It was, it was great. So yeah, I'd encourage anybody to try it. I haven't had anything. I've actually had a few things that I cooked that I didn't care for as much when I made it the first time around and I still dehydrated it and did, you know, some test batches and tasted it. I'm like, wow, that, that's actually better. Like certain things, flavors got concentrated and and, kind of mulled together to where it went better. Um, And and it was kind of weird like that, but it's funny you say the fruit leathers because I make them in plans and preparation to actually try and take them with me while I'm hunting and doing different stuff. And they never make it out of the house. My kids demolish them. I mean, they will take and eat like one whole leather that's on the train. I'm like, that's, that's a lot. That's too much. Like, <laughs> but they, I mean, they just tear them up to the point to where if we're making them, we have to try and plan ahead to where we know we're making like four batches. So they'll get tired of them and then we'll end up, we'll end up having extras that I can use. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They don't, they don't last here. I mean, I definitely have to, do them in secrecy if I have any hopes of actually taking them with me on a trip. Yeah. Have you tried uh, like sweet potato leathers? Yep. Yeah. I was going to say probably one of my favorites is like, like a sweet potato apple puree leather. That was, that was really good. It got really well. And, um, you know, like I said, we've done apple plum, all sorts of different berry recipes and they've all turned out great. So have you ever, um, and this is something I've kind of had in my head for a while and, and never done it is like, have you ever taken like buckwheat and made it and dehydrated it or like oatmeal? No, I've, uh, I've not done buckwheat, but like, so that couscous recipe, I don't do anything to it beforehand. I literally measure out how much couscous I want to use, throw in some ground beef or chicken, some kale and cook it up there because couscous is so small, it rehydrates great on the mountains. That requires almost no prep work, which is nice. So, you know, usually I'll make a couple of those up too, but no, I've not tried the buckwheat thing. Cause I, I do the buckwheat instead of oatmeal. And I've been kind of curious cause I put just a little bit of maple syrup in there to give it a flavor, some cinnamon and different stuff like that. And then throw some fruit in there. And that, in my head, I'm like, I don't see why this wouldn't dehydrate. And then you just break it back up into, you know, kind of a dust and measure it out and be able to do that and just rehydrate that. So that's kind of my next. Yeah, I, I, I would think it would work fine. I know a lot of guys have had great luck with quinoa and I can't picture it being a whole lot different. Right. Yeah. So that's something I'm going to have to experiment with for sure. Then I'm going to I'll let you know on that. But um, what's your absolute favorite meal you've ever made? Oh, no question. The chili mac. Really? The chili mac, huh? I think yeah, sure. usually I'll have like some crackers left from the day or whatever. And like you crumble that up and you throw it in there. There's just not. And, and, and part of it, too, is is just the, you know, like the 
sort of the nostalgia of knowing, you know, like, so this, this year I made a big batch of venison chili mac, knowing I shot a deer, I did all the prep work, I ground, you know, I did, I did the grind myself, I made it like, and just to be able to sit there hunting and know that I, I it's just, it's just so fulfilling. Um, and I, maybe that's part of why it is, but you know, the other piece too, like in the West, in the fall, it's cold in September, <laughs> right? And you come back after you've been hunting all day and you've got this giant bowl of chili and it's just, it's like, I just can't picture a better way to end the night than, than having a big bowl of that stuff. And yeah, they've all been good. I mean, I, I don't think that I've tried one that I haven't, you know, liked, but definitely I'm pretty excited when I open up the food bag for the day and I find out that it's chili mac. <laughs> so my absolute favorite, I think, that I've done is mashed potatoes, gravy, a pot roast, and then I took frozen peas and carrots and steamed them, added it all together, mixed it all up, dehydrated it, and just like, to me, it's like super home style, just, you know, it. It's one of those things that it's like, it'll take you back and make you think you're at home at your kitchen table. It's, it's so good. And it, it kind of reminds so, you of when you're a kid though, like when you mix, mix up your plate. Yeah. So is it, that's my question. Is it like when you rehydrate it, is it essentially just this bowl of stuff or can you make out the individual parts of it? So I tried to do it both ways. Um, the original way is I took everything separate, dehydrated it separate, even dehydrated my gravy separate. And then so you had like these little shards of glass that like I layered. I even layered it to where you just pull the oxygen absorber out, pour it in, and hopefully it kind of like settles back into that. But it didn't necessarily work that good. So I combine it all in a big bowl and I mix it all up beforehand, even with the gravy in it. Can you distinguish like yeah, yes, you know there's potatoes in there, you can taste the gravy in there, but you can't really see it because the potatoes have kind of turned to a darker tan or brown, you know, at that point with the gravy. Um, and you can still pick up the chunks of meat. Like I don't because I, I pull it apart, but I you know, like I cook the roast until it's falling apart where you can pull it apart with a fork and come out in bigger chunks. And then I just pick those parts into smaller chunks, but I don't break the the meat up to where it's necessarily super small so yeah i break it up and some of the meat gets broken up into smaller chunks but you can still distinguish that there is still meat there it sounds delicious i i think that's like out of all the things i've made so far that's the one's like man i wish i would have made more of these so that's one thing i'm gonna have to crank out before i before i head out this year for, for colorado for sure yeah, I'll have to take some pictures of it, post it up too, because I'd be curious to see what, what it looks like. Beforehand or, or like in the bag rehydrated? Both. I want to see both. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'll let you know on that one. Um, so real quick, I got to ask you though, like what do you say when you make your chili mac and you dehydrate it and then you take it and you're measuring it out to put it in each bag? What are you using to kind of scoop it out or give you like – an actual portion size i weigh it so i i after it's all done i put it you know i put a giant bowl on a food scale and i weigh it 
And I know what's in it because I've done the math on the raw ingredients, right? And just, and all you're taking out is water. So the caloric value doesn't change. The protein content doesn't change. Carbohydrate content does none of that changes. So I know whatever the end product weighs, if I divide it by X number of servings, I know exactly what's in it, right? So I pretty much do the math on all of that, put it on a, you know, in a food scale, weigh it, and then take that portion out, put it in a baggie, and then that ends up being, you know, one portion. Now, could it, could a person take a measuring cup and, you know, do like one cup until it runs out? Yeah, you could do that too, but like you know this is my job so my analytical <laughs> mind like it just it just won't let me do that i mean it, there's you know and, and i want that to be clear like you don't have to be that meticulous i just am and i, I like i like the process and you know I, I enjoy that piece of it so i i do it but you could definitely finish the whole product, put it in a bowl, scoop a cup of it out, put it in a baggie and call it a day, right? I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with going that route either. But, and I will say it did take me a little time in the beginning to learn, you know, okay, how much of this dry product is going to yield a decent meal, right? Because there's nothing worse than packaging it all up and you get back and you're like, well, geez, this is a kid's meal, you know, not like an actual meal that's going to fill me up and, and keep me running. It did take me a little bit of time to play with that to realize, you know, what, how much dry ingredients is it going to make up to fill a decent sized bowl and actually help me feel like I had a good dinner. Um, but once you figure that out, it's pretty much universal. And I'll say the same thing too of reconstituting it. Like there's a big, there's been a lot of uh, folks ask like, you know, how much water should I use to it? And the nice thing is, is that you can add as much as you want and then pour it out if you have extra, right? Or, you know, what I'll typically do is just drink it off because again, it's hot water, it's flavored broth or whatever it is that you're cooking. So it tastes, it still tastes good. And it's nice to warm up to before you actually dig into the meal. So like I've found some meals, it works great, especially it seems like a pasta type meal or something like that. Um, one cup with a measuring cup is pretty decent portion. But there's some other things that I've done that I'm like, man, that is not enough. Like for instance, the roast, I did one cup of that. And I don't know if it's just because the potatoes don't rehydrate to the same texture or something. I I'm not sure on that, but that did not seem like enough or maybe it was just in my head and it actually was enough. And I just liked it so much. The inner fat kid in me was yelling out. I want more. I don't know, but. But but you, but it's, but you bring up a really good point because like if I were to take that same cup and scoop out the couscous, I mentioned the lid would blow off my container. I mean, that entire (laughs) container fill up with couscous. I mean, that stuff just fluffs so much. So you're right. It's it's definitely not a universal one size fits all that you should just be scooping out a cup and hoping that it works. So it does take a little bit of time to play with. But once you know that ratio, once you know, okay, this this recipe calls for this much dehydrated food and this is a good portion, you're set, right? I mean, you're you're sort of have done the work and then you're you're able to know that from that point moving forward and you can plan accordingly. No, I like that. Maybe I'll have to nerd out 
and uh, next time weigh all of my ingredients beforehand and break it down into the macros and see. <laughs> I'm probably not going to do that, but it I might. Be, I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to, at the very least, you know, to to see how you know to see how well you do and if you recover better and things like that. If you if you had a certain number in mind that was tailored a bit towards you in terms of calories and then the different macronutrients, it would be interesting just to see if you felt better. I might, I might have to do that now. I don't know. We'll see. But, uh, I appreciate you coming on and talking and talking about meals. I always love talking about food. That's the Midwesty in me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, it's been good and I appreciate it. Before we go, you want to tell everybody uh, one more time where they can find you and, uh, reach out to you if they need help or anything like that. Yeah, I, I appreciate you having me. It's, uh, you know, I love, obviously, I love nutrition and I don't get to talk about this piece of it much. So it's been fun. And again, yeah, I appreciate the invitation and, and the idea. So you can find me on all the different social media things. It's um, V2P Nutrition. So it's V and then the number two P Nutrition and V2P Nutrition.com. And yeah, if you have any questions, I'd be more than happy to help. All right. Well, I appreciate it. And thank you for coming on and talking. My pleasure. Thanks, Luz. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram, or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. A mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. I'm Will Cooper host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device.